Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for March 21st through 27th, 2022. This is covering Exodus chapters 1 through 6. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Yay! Wonderful. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 27 minutes, 42 seconds. That's been right in line with most of our reading weeks. And what would this be daily? 3 minutes, 57 seconds. So easy to do. Here are time codes if you want to do it chapter by chapter. Otherwise, buckle up and let's study them all together. So here we are beginning the book of Exodus. Let's take a look in chapter 1. In the first eight verses, eventually Joseph and his generation died. By this time, the children of Israel had greatly increased in number. And think for a minute about how significant that is. Up until now, we've had these promises for Abraham and his descendants that they would have seed like the sands of the seashore, the stars of the heaven. But think about back to the original covenant of Abraham. We only have one birthright son through which the covenant is going. Same with Isaac. By the time we get to Jacob, we now begin to have this expansive family who are all carrying forward the covenant and covered under the name of Israel. So that when we look at verse 7, it says, And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty. These are some phrases being fruitful and multiplying that harken back to the very earliest commandments to Adam and Eve and to Noah, and it begins to open up this blessing originally promised to Abraham, so much so that they filled the land. Now, in verse 8, it tells us that there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Well, why would that be a problem? Imagine that you are a ruler over a nation that had another nation, a growing nation living in its borders, who were not your people, and they are getting very powerful. Hmm. Let's take a look at verse 9. And he said unto his people, Behold, the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service, wherein they made them serve, was with rigor. Now here's an important side note. The story of Moses involves two pharaohs. What is the name of this pharaoh, or this new king of Egypt, which knew not Joseph? This is a sore spot for many biblical scholars. He's never named. Neither is his successor later in the story. This has caused a great deal of debate among scholars attempting to align the Israelite exodus with what is known of Egyptian history. 
This would also help us to more accurately date the story. Unfortunately, due to lack of information, some feel this aligns with mid-13th century B.C., some 1500 B.C., and still others even earlier or in between. Due largely to movie depictions like Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments in 1956 or the more recent animated movie The Prince of Egypt from 1998, we've come to assume that this first pharaoh's name was Seti and his son, the successor, was Ramses, specifically Ramses II. But the fact remains that we don't actually know who either of them are. Very true. Now, looking back on the verses John just read, I find an interesting theme here. The oppression, as much as the enemies of Israel tried to oppress them and afflict them with burdens, they prospered all the more. And think about all the other times in the history of God's people that we see that kind of thing, whether it's Israel later in the Bible, whether it's the early Christians, whether it's the pioneers in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's an interesting pattern that we're seeing here. What follows is a story of the deliverance of the Israelites from this bondage by the power of God through the man Moses, who's been writing this account through Genesis up to this point. Although Moses is the one in the spotlight, I'd encourage you, look for all the people, especially the women, who helped make sure Moses could do the work God called him to do. I mentioned the women because no less than six women can be seen saving the very life of Moses so that he can save Israel. We will meet the first of these in the following verses. Let's pick it up in verse 15. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shifra and the name of the other Pua. Now, it's interesting that Moses would want his readers to know the names of these humble working class women. Keep in mind that the story would have communicated just fine without including their names, so that they're included means something special. Verse 16, And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. As an aside, birthing stools were, and still are, used by women to take the pressure off their legs when giving birth. Some stools have handles for women to grab onto, but the seat usually has an open space, a bit like a modern toilet seat. This allows for gravity to help the child come out through the opening in the stool. Let's go on in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing and have saved the men children alive? I should just as an aside mention who they are rebelling against by doing what they're doing here. This is the king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the area. So the midwives were very courageous to do that. Verse 19, and the midwives said unto Pharaoh, well, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively, or another way to say that might be vigorous, and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. In other words, Well, gosh, they kind of just do things themselves. They're strong and powerful, and they're not like the Egyptian women. So kids are already born by the time we get there. In verse 20, Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, 
that he made them houses, or in other words, households or descendants. Check your footnotes. In verse 22, And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. It's interesting to me that the Pharaoh had no trouble killing a child just as it's born, but evidently you couldn't go back and kill it even after it was born. That would be a problem. Yeah, that's cruel. But yeah, it's really kind of strange. (laughs) That is strange. Another example of weird worldly morality. But the bravery of these midwives is absolutely amazing. And I think it is very interesting that Moses included their names From the Institute Manual, we have this great quote from then-Elder Dallin H. Oaks from the October 2013 General Conference, where he says, quote, Man's laws cannot make moral what God has declared immoral. Commitment to our highest priority to love and serve God requires that we look to his law for our standard of behavior. For example, We remain under divine command not to commit adultery or fornication, even when those acts are no longer crimes under the laws of the states or countries where we reside. Similarly, laws legalizing so-called same-sex marriage do not change God's law of marriage or his commandments and our standards concerning it. We remain under covenant to love God and keep his commandments and to refrain from serving other gods and priorities even those becoming popular in our particular time and place. In this determination, we may be misunderstood, and we may incur accusations of bigotry, suffer discrimination, or have to withstand invasions of our free exercise of religion. If so, I think we should remember our first priority, to serve God, and like our pioneer predecessors, push our personal handcarts forward with the same fortitude they exhibited, end quote. And so just like the example given by Elder Oaks, these midwives feared God, and in spite of the command of the king and for fear of their lives, they bravely obeyed God. Well, and they were blessed for it. We look at the blessings. Obviously, Pharaoh didn't bless them. So an interesting thing to think about here is who are we looking to please in how we behave, what we say, God or the world? In this case, because they were obedient to God, God dealt well with the midwives. Let me share a quote with you from Elder Gary E. Stevenson. This is from the October 2012 General Conference. He says, There will be times when you will have to demonstrate your righteous courage in plain view of your peers, the consequence of which may be ridicule and embarrassment. He will reward you for your courage and righteous behavior with happiness and joy. Such courage will be a byproduct of your faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement, your prayers, and your obedience to the commandments. Nice. Now, was the growing power of the Israelites the sole concern that caused Pharaoh to slaughter the infant males? The Institute Manual shares this insight. Both the ancient Jewish historian Josephus and Jonathan ben Uziel, another ancient Jewish writer, recorded that the Pharaoh had a dream wherein he was shown that a man soon to be born would deliver Israel from bondage, and this dream motivated the royal decree to drown the male children. Interesting. Well, let's meet the next important women in the life of Moses. 
starting in Exodus chapter 2. Let's take a look at the first four verses. And there went a man of the house of Levi and took a wife, a daughter of Levi. As an aside, we learn from Exodus 6.20 that her name was Yohebed. Going on in verse 2, And the women conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. Now in verse 3, it uses the word ark. The Hebrew word teba is only used in one other place in the Bible. And that is in the story of Noah and the ark. One way that you can take a look at this, let me share with you a quick resource. If you type in that reference, Exodus 2 verse 3, one of the options that will come up in your search will be biblehub.com. When you go to the verse, click up here for interlinear Bible, and this will show you the Hebrew, or if you're in the New Testament, the Greek words. Here you can see an ark, tebat, right there. And then if you hold your mouse over the word, it will tell you how many times it's occurred. And it mentions just two occurrences here and in Noah's story. And right up here, it will tell you the meaning of the word. It's either one of two things, either the ark, a vessel in which Noah built, or the basket vessel in which Moses was placed. The reason I find that interesting is that Noah's ark was built to save mankind. And in this case, that same ark, that tabot, is used to save Israel. Moses will be the mechanism by which the Lord will save Israel. And here he is preserved in that same kind of vessel, that same Hebrew word for ark. It's really helpful sometimes to make those comparisons for one other reason. In the English Bible, in the King James Version, we have another ark coming. It's the Ark of the Covenant. But that word, although the translators used ark, is a different Hebrew word. It is not teba. Right. Great resource. Back to the chapter, verse 5. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him, and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses. And she said, Because I drew him out of the water. I just love that story. I hope you were able to picture it from the narrative. But his sister, Moses' sister Miriam, is watching out to see what's going to happen. And then she pops out at just the opportune time to say, Hey, I could find a nursemaid for that. And of course, she knows exactly who to pick. So the very mother who gave him up is the very mother who gets to nurse him and raise him up before he's brought back to Pharaoh's daughter. And kind of a side blessing to that, she gets paid for it now. Yeah, yeah, nice. So 
The two midwives, Moses' mother, Yechebed, and his sister Miriam, and Pharaoh's daughter, all made sure that Moses would survive. Of course, you could also count the maiden who retrieved the ark, but this is really setting the stage for Moses being able to do what God wants Moses to do. But it's these women, these protectors of life, who are making sure it happens. One of the themes for this year that we will keep bringing up is as you're reading the Old Testament, check your footnotes. Here's another example. In verse 10, we learn that Moses in Egyptian means to beget a child, but in Hebrew, the same name means to draw out. And I think Pharaoh's daughter had the Hebrew in mind because she mentions that she drew him out of the water. But of course, to draw out will have a much more powerful meaning later in Moses's life. The book of Exodus does not give us a lot of information about Moses's life from the time he's discovered in the ark to his adult years. Interestingly, in the New Testament, Stephen and Paul both appear to know something more about Moses's life than we currently have. The Institute Manual tells us, in the New Testament, Stephen made a lengthy speech about the dealings of the Lord with the house of Israel. Concerning Moses' youth, Stephen related, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. That's from Acts chapter 7, verse 22. Josephus said that Moses was a very handsome and educated prince and a mighty warrior in the cause of the Egyptians. As a prince... Moses may have had access to the royal libraries of the Egyptians as well as the scriptural record of the Israelites as taught by his mother. Quite possibly, he read the prophecies of Joseph and was led by the Spirit to understand his divine appointment to deliver his brethren, the Israelites. Stephen's address implied that Moses understood his responsibility, and when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. Paul, in Hebrews, added further to the concept, By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Moses' mother, Yochabed, likely taught him the principles and righteous traditions of the Hebrews as she nursed and cared for him. So if we look ahead now into verses 11 through 25, when Moses was grown, he defended a Hebrew slave by killing an Egyptian who was attempting to beat or kill the slave. When Pharaoh learned about the death, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled to Midian. While there, he met a special woman at a well and defended her and her sisters and the flocks from ruffians. It turns out that these sisters were the daughters of a man named Ruel. The Institute Manual tells us that the more common name for Ruel is Jethro. Jethro was a descendant of Midian, who was a son of Abraham and Keturah. Through this line, Moses received the priesthood, according to Doctrine and Covenants 84, verses 6 through 13. Now, he soon married Ruel's daughter Zipporah, and they had a son. So once again, if you're looking for that special someone, try hanging around the well. Right. And remember, this continues a tradition that was started with Isaac through Abraham's servant, Eliezer, and went on through the other patriarchs all have an experience finding their special someone at a well. 
And to be fair, we don't actually know how Abraham and Sarah met. I bet it was at a well. Oh, could have been a well. So meanwhile, the children of Israel in Egypt cried unto the Lord for deliverance from bondage. In verse 23, And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Now, the Institute Manual reminds us that from Stephen's discourse in the New Testament, Acts chapter 7, verse 30, indicates that the process of time described here was another 40 years. Wow. So this brings us to Exodus chapter 3. Let's start in verse 1. Now, Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. Now, a couple of quick side notes here. First, note the footnote in verse 1. The Joseph Smith translation specifies that Jethro was a high priest of Midian, indicating that he had held the Melchizedek priesthood. Also, Horeb and Mount Sinai, where Moses would later receive the Ten Commandments, is actually the same place. Where is it today? No one knows for sure. So, we'll go on in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him. Note the Joseph Smith translation in the footnotes. Rather than an angel of the Lord, it says the presence of the Lord. Going on. In a flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. Now, for those of you who remember our discussion of Joseph Smith's first vision last year, that kind of reminds me of one of the alternate recordings of that event, where Joseph describes that the glory coming down looked like it would burn the trees as it came down, but it didn't. Verse 4, And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush, and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Think for a minute about the application here. This applies to each one of us. God sees our afflictions, hears our prayers, and knows our sorrows. And there's something kind of interesting about verse 4. There's an interesting example. The Lord waits to talk to Moses until the Lord sees that Moses is looking at him, is paying attention. Interesting. It's interesting how the Lord waits for us to reach out to him, and then he will reach down to us. And although it may not be a burning bush, he does often, in my experience, do things in our lives to catch our attention. Right. And then it's up to us. But he still waits for us to call upon him. Yep. Verse 8, And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, 
and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, that's quite a description of the land of promise. And if you're interested in a Hebrew song about that very topic, about a land flowing with milk and honey, we would recommend a little video we made about learning Hebrew with folk songs. And we'll link to it in the description. That was fun. But a side note, who are all these ites that are in verse 8? Technically, they're all Canaanites, or descendants of Canaan, the son of Ham, the son of Noah. The Hittites descend from Heth, the son of Canaan. You can check your Bible dictionary for that information. And the others are mentioned as descendants of Canaan in Genesis chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. So if they're all Canaanites, why are the tribes individually listed? Remember in the Book of Mormon that the term Lamanite was often used as a larger grouping to encompass actual descendants of Laman, but also of Lemuelites and Ishmaelites, and at times even others. Genesis chapter 10 lists more descendant tribes than just the ones listed in Exodus 3.8. Perhaps the individual tribes are enumerated because these specific tribes were currently inhabiting the land promised Abraham. In other words, Not all Canaanites dwelt there, but all the people that dwelt there were Canaanites of various sub-tribes. Great. Back to chapter 3, verse 9. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So you may remember, we talked about this in our previous lesson, about the prophecy that Joseph made before he died, found in the Joseph Smith translation in the appendix. He foretold of the bondage of Egypt, but also that a prophet would be raised up to deliver Israel. Let's take a look at that again in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 50, verse 29. And I will make him great in mine eyes, for he shall do my work. And he shall be great like unto him whom I have said I would raise up unto you to deliver my people, O house of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. For a seer will I raise up to deliver my people out of the land of Egypt. And he shall be called Moses. And by this name he shall know that he is of thy house. For he shall be nursed by the king's daughter and shall be called her son. So, What follows is a list of the concerns of Moses and how the Lord answers these concerns. Let's just summarize those here. In verse 11, Moses says, Who am I to be able to do what you've asked? In verse 12, the response, I will be with you. In other words, it doesn't matter who he is. It matters who God is. In verse 13, Who should I tell them sent me? And the Lord answers in verses 14 through 17, summarized as, tell them, I am sent you unto them. I am is another name for Jehovah. Yeah, and a quick aside here. Some have suggested that the Israelites had fallen into such apostasy that they'd forgotten the name of their own deity. I don't read it this way. The Israelites had spent four centuries among the Egyptians, who had an entirely different religion. As an Israelite, imagine someone coming up to you who you knew had been raised as an Egyptian, 
claiming to have a message from your God. You imagine responding, okay, and what's the name of my God? And you might expect an answer of, uh, Mamakra, uh, Pharaoh, uh, Ra, but receiving a title name like I am or Jehovah, every Israelite would instantly know that this Egyptian knows their God. Right. So let's continue this exploration in Exodus chapter 4. Looking at verse 1, Moses' concern is, but they will not believe me or listen to me. They will say I'm lying. The Lord responds in verses 2 through 9, perform the three signs that I will give you. These turn out to be turning a rod into a snake, displaying a hand bearing leprosy, and then cleansed, and turn water into blood. In verse 10, Moses' concern, I've never been a good speaker. I'm slow of speech. In verses 11 and 12, the Lord says, I made your mouth and I will be with you and teach you what to say. Notice his response in verse 13, please, Lord, send someone else. In verses 14 through 17, the Lord responds with, I will make Aaron a spokesman for you and teach you what to do. So each step along the way, the Lord is preparing help, whether directly from the Lord or through those that are willing to serve the Lord, like Aaron, and help Moses with his calling. And I'm not sure that we've talked about this yet, but Aaron would be Moses's brother, specifically his older brother. Now, remember a few lessons ago when we talked about Enoch and how he was similarly insecure about his call? Right. And... I've got a quote here from President Thomas S. Monson from the April 1996 General Conference. He reminds us of this, quote, Now some of you may be shy by nature or consider yourselves inadequate to respond affirmatively to a calling. Remember that this work is not yours and mine alone. It is the Lord's work. And when we are on the Lord's errand, we are entitled to the Lord's help. Remember that whom the Lord calls, the Lord qualifies, close quote. Now, quick aside, it's time to sync the timeline with some earlier lessons. Remember the grand vision of Moses and the Pearl of Great Price that we studied at the beginning of the year? We don't know exactly when and where that took place, but there are clues in the revelation itself that help. Moses chapter 1 verse 17 refers to the burning bush incident as something that happened in the past. So it took place sometime later than that. Moses chapter 1 verse 25 implies that the deliverance of Israel has not yet happened. So the vision recorded in the Pearl of Great Price happened sometime after this initial call, but before the Exodus. Yeah, that's interesting to know. So in Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31, after this encounter with the Lord, Moses left Midian, met Aaron, and traveled with him to Egypt. Together they told the elders of Israel all that the Lord had commanded. The children of Israel believed Moses and Aaron and worshiped the Lord. Now this will show up a few times in the Exodus story, but look at verse 21. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? In each instance, the Joseph Smith translation clarifies that the Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It certainly wouldn't seem very just if the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and then punished him for it. Pharaoh still has his agency, but the Lord knows what he's going to choose. 
Right. And what's the deal with the story in verses 24 through 26? The Institute Manual provides this insight. The King James Version lacks detail in this account. The Joseph Smith translation indicates that the Lord was angry with Moses for failing to circumcise his son. It appears that Zipporah had not wanted to circumcise Gershom, but relented when the Lord expressed his anger to Moses. Quoting from the Joseph Smith translation for Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 27 in your appendix, And it came to pass that the Lord appeared unto him as he was in the way by the inn. The Lord was angry with Moses, and his hand was about to fall upon him to kill him, for he had not circumcised his son. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and circumcised her son, and cast the stone at his feet, and said, Surely thou art a bloody husband unto me. And the Lord spared Moses and let him go, because Zipporah, his wife, circumcised the child. And she said, Thou art a bloody husband. And Moses was ashamed, and hid his face from the Lord, and said, I have sinned before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went and met him in the mount of God, in the mount where God appeared unto him. And Aaron kissed him. Interesting side note there. Notice that the Lord spoke unto Aaron. Moses isn't the only one to receive revelation directly from the Lord. Right. Now, this story is one that has puzzled biblical commentators for a long time. I thought I would just share with you a little bit from Professor Tikva Frymer-Kensky's book, Reading the Women of the Bible, which I mentioned before. She has this to say, God may have attacked Moses so that Zipporah would save with blood, thus foreshadowing the way Israel would save their firstborn children in Egypt with the blood of the Lamb. The narrator alerts the reader to the parallel to the Exodus by mentioning the death of the firstborn in Egypt just before the story begins in verse 23. Early readers noted the parallels between the two blood stories and the Septuagint, the Greek translation, and the Targums, the Aramaic translations, heightened the parallels by having the attacker be not God, but an angel which it calls the destroyer the same name Exodus 12 calls the killer of the firstborn. Zipporah doesn't hesitate or ask why. She quickly takes a flint and circumcises their son, and by circumcising him, she averts doom. Nothing else is clear. She understands what is happening, knows what to do, averts the doom, and rescues Moses. Moses cannot act. He is either under attack, deathly ill, or paralyzed. He needs another savior, and another woman steps up. Zipporah acts to prevent a killing. In this experience of the frightening aspect of divine power, Moses' wife grows into a savior. She becomes a surrogate parent, protecting Moses as well as her children. Moses' Israelite biological mother, Yochebed, and his Egyptian foster mother, Midrash, named the daughter of Pharaoh, Bithia, are now joined in a triad of saviors by the Midianite ritual mother. Now Moses will turn from being the rescued to the rescuer, from the saved to the savior. Nice. I like that. Moving to chapter 5. Starting in verse 1, And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, 
Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. So what do we learn about Pharaoh in just that verse? Remember that in ancient Egyptian culture, the Pharaoh is not only a man and ultimate ruler, he is worshipped as a god. Yeah. Going on in verse 3. And they said, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert, and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And the king of Egypt said unto them, Wherefore do ye, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their works? Get you unto your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land now are many, and ye make them rest from their burdens. And Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, Ye shall no more give the people straw to make brick as heretofore. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and the tale of bricks which they did make heretofore ye shall lay upon them. Ye shall not diminish aught thereof, for they be idle. Therefore they cry, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let their more work be laid upon the men, that they may labor therein, and let them not regard vain words. So you'd think if you're doing what the Lord asked you to do, that everything would work out. Now, you'd think that if you'd never had any experience with the Lord helping you to learn and to grow. Remember that even when we're following the Lord's commands, we may experience opposition. Have you ever felt that? What kinds of responses might one expect standing up for gospel truths on, say, social media today? Do you think you can do that without pushback? Elder Neil L. Anderson in the April 2014 General Conference shared an experience of a young woman I thought we'd share. He said, Recently I spoke with a Laurel from the United States. I quote from her email, This past year, some of my friends on Facebook began posting their position on marriage. Many favored same-sex marriage, and several LDS youth indicated they liked the postings. I made no comment. I decided to declare my belief in traditional marriage in a thoughtful way. With my profile picture, I added the caption, I believe in marriage between a man and a woman. Almost instantly, I started receiving messages. You are selfish. You are judgmental. One compared me to a slave owner, and I received this post from a great friend who is a strong member of the church. You need to catch up with the times. Things are changing, and so should you. I did not fight back, she said, but I did not take my statement down. She concludes, sometimes, as President Monson said, you have to stand alone. Hopefully, as youth, we will stand together in being true to God and to the teachings of his living prophets. I like that story. I remember that. Yeah. Now, the next few verses in chapter 5, verses 10 through 19, Pharaoh's taskmasters told the Israelite slaves that in addition to making the same number of bricks each day, they would now have to collect the straw needed to make the bricks. When the Israelites failed to make the same amount of bricks as before, the taskmasters beat them. The Israelite officers complained to Pharaoh about their plight, but he was unsympathetic and rebuked them for being idle. As the Israelite officers were leaving Pharaoh, we pick up in verse 20, And they met Moses and Aaron, who stood in the way, as they came forth from Pharaoh. And they said unto them, The Lord look upon you and judge. 
because ye have made our savour to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh, and in the eyes of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to slay us. And Moses returned unto the Lord, and said, Lord, wherefore hast thou so evil entreated this people? Why is it that thou hast sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he hath done evil to this people. Neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. Well, these are good questions. Why does the Lord not immediately solve all of our difficulties? Look for some answers in our next chapter, Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob. Here we'll switch to the Joseph Smith translation of Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. He goes on to say, I am the Lord God Almighty, the Lord Jehovah, and was not my name known unto them? It's interesting that for a translator, the Hebrew here could be rendered as a statement, the way the King James translators did, or as a question, the way Joseph Smith did. The Joseph Smith translation certainly better supports the idea that the Israelites already knew his name. Right. Going on in verse 4, And I have also established my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Now that Moses understands the Lord's purposes, God gives him a message to take to his people. Starting in verse 6, Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments, and I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you in unto the land, concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it you for an heritage. I am the Lord. Think about the things today that bring us into bondage. In what ways do these verses inspire you and give you strength? Perhaps Reread them, thinking about the things that bring you into bondage at some level today. Feel the comfort and the strength of the Lord. Let's go on to verse 9. And Moses spake so unto the children of Israel, and they hearkened not unto Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. From the seminary manual, it offers this insight. The Israelites had been in bondage for approximately 400 years, during that time, they were influenced by idol worship and belief about Egyptian gods. The Israelites responded negatively to Moses because they did not know the Lord and had been in bondage and suffering for a long time. It was one thing to take the Israelites out of Egypt, but quite another to get Egypt out of the Israelites. And we'll see that as we go on in future lessons. Verse 10 and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Go in, speak unto Pharaoh king of Egypt, that he let the children of Israel go out of his hand. And Moses spake before the Lord, saying, Behold, the children of Israel have not hearkened unto me. 
And when shall Pharaoh hear me, who am of uncircumcised lips? Now, that is kind of a strange phrase, but check out the footnotes. It indicates that it means impaired speech. Although the phrase is kind of strange, it's not the last time that we'll see it used. Now, you may remember Moses feeling this way back in chapter 4. Remember in verse 10 how he said, I'm not eloquent, neither heretofore. At the end, he says, I'm slow of speech and of a slow tongue. The Lord's response required Moses to exercise faith in the promises the Lord had just made to him. As he followed the Lord's commandments, Moses would receive the Lord's help. We need to exercise faith in the Lord and be willing to do difficult, even seemingly impossible things. And our study of the scriptures can help us to access the grace of Christ, the power of heaven, to do what God wants us to do, even if to us it seems impossible. In Exodus chapter 6, verses 14 through 27, these verses present the genealogy of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And the last three verses reiterate Moses' commission, starting in verse 28. And it came to pass on the day when the Lord spake unto Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak thou unto Pharaoh king of Egypt all that I say unto thee. And Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh hearken unto me? Now, we don't fully understand the nature of Moses' condition. Did he actually have some form of speech impediment, or did he simply feel insecure as a public speaker? Either way, is that the Lord's pattern? Does he seek out the most eloquent, the most handsome, the most popular, or even the most qualified person to do his work? Remember what we learned at the beginning of last year when the Lord declared in Doctrine and Covenants section 1, verses 23 to 24, that the fullness of my gospel might be proclaimed by the weak and the simple unto the ends of the world and before kings and rulers. Behold, I am God and have spoken it. These commandments are of me and were given unto my servants in their weakness after the manner of their language, that they might come to understanding. Yeah, and this is going to be so important as we watch Moses' development and the man he will become to fulfill the responsibilities the Lord has given him and how it will bless the whole nation of Israel. But remember the great women that we talked about, Shifra and Puah, Yochebed, Bithya, Miriam, Zipporah, let me finish with another quote from Tikva Frimer Kensky's book, Reading the Women of the Bible. She says, quote, The stories of the great women of the Exodus show the true meaning of the Midrashic proverb, Because of the righteous women of that generation, Israel was redeemed from Egypt. These women were proactive and assertive, even while the men were passive, reactive, or absent. They continue to function strongly and decisively, even in conditions of dire oppression, and they stood up to overwhelming power. Political power, paternal power, even divine power, all failed to deter these women. Nice. What great examples we've explored today. What amazing and relatable doctrines and principles we understand in maybe a much smaller way what it is to be oppressed or to be afflicted or to be challenged in various ways all of us do 
what can we learn from these incredible examples about how we can stay close to God and to do great things through His divine power? Well, as interesting and as exciting as this story is already shaping up, there is much more to come. There sure is. Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll talk more about it in our next lesson. See you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans.